Chapter 2. Unmasking the Villain A large proportion of those who claim to be followers of the Christian revelation have long since ceased to take seriously the reality of one of the principal figures in the biblical record. His name is Satan, the adversary. The New Testament and the earliest post-apostolic writings identify him with the serpent who disrupted the tranquility of the Garden of Eden. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 14, where the serpent is parallel with the devil of Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, where the devil is equated with the serpent. The devil's Hebrew name is linked in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, with the word seraph in Numbers 21, verses 6 and 8, Nachash in Genesis 3, verse 1, and Saraph, fiery serpent, are closely connected, and the word seraphim, the plural of Saraph, appear as heavenly beings in Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 6. The suggestion here is that there's a connection with the world of angelic beings in whose company Satan is found in the book of Job. That's in Job 1, verse 6 and chapter 2, verse 1. The New Testament Christians are very much aware of him. He is permitted to exercise an extensive influence over the affairs of mankind. 1 John 5, verse 19, and Revelation 12, verse 9. And he's entitled to be called, quote, the God of the present age. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. That is, the whole period of human history until the future return of Christ to inaugurate the new age of the kingdom of God on earth. Paul refers to this whole period of human history leading up to the future establishment of the kingdom as the, and I quote, present evil age, Galatians 1 verse 4. Satan is also the original liar, as in John 8 verse 44. He's the arch deceiver, as it says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 and 4 and verses 13 to 15. Bent on the destruction of as many of the human race as possible, his work is aimed at obstructing and obscuring the truth of the divine gospel message, which illuminates the path to immortality. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, Paul's missionary activity is obstructed by the devil. When the gospel about the kingdom is preached, the devil is on hand to swallow up the message before it can take root in the human mind. You'll find that in Matthew 13, verse 19, and Luke 8, verse 12. The devil's purpose is to destroy the people of the kingdom. Hence, Herod's attempt to eliminate the Messiah in Matthew 2, verses 3 to 18, and the devil's threat to the messianic community headed by Jesus, as in Revelation 12, verse 4, 
and verses 13 to 18. Peter speaks of Satan as, quote, your opponent prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. The devil's methods are subtle and treacherous. They would be the envy of any contemporary con artist. As the enemy of God and of mankind, Satan would prefer to remain hidden. His work is more easily accomplished when men are convinced that he does not exist. It was the common belief of the New Testament church, including Jesus, that Satan is a fallen angel. Paul describes him as wearing the mask of an angel of light, implying that he is in fact an angel of darkness in camouflage. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14. He has the power to fascinate as he masquerades as a messenger of light. His human agents, Paul revealed, conceal their real identity behind a facade of goodness. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 and 15. Evidently, the satanic administration is a redoubtable enemy worthy of close scrutiny by Christians desiring to avoid falling for his trickery. John the Apostle states that Satan has the entire world in the grip of his deception. That's in 1 John 5 verse 19 and Revelation 12 verse 9. His program of relentless and anti-biblical propaganda aims at getting men to believe his lies. His method is the presentation of a half-truth, the cleverest form of falsehood. Paul sees him as extremely active, an ever-present threat to the Christians whom the Apostle counsels not to be unaware of his devices. That's 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. Paul makes no bones about labeling preachers of fake Christianity as the devil's servants. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 15. The only antidote to being duped is a thorough knowledge of and passion for truth, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 13. The New Testament makes it more than clear that Satan operates extensively in the field of religion. The scribes and Pharisees, the representatives of the religious establishment in Jesus' day, were seen by Jesus as Satan's principal exponents. Matthew 23, verse 33. Jesus threatened them with destruction in Gehenna, a fate prepared for the devil himself and his angelic cohorts. You'll find that in Matthew 25, verse 41. These evil leaders of religion had become servants of the devil, and Jesus was uncompromising in his condemnation of them. They were the target of his righteous indignation because their religious traditions were in conflict with the divine message and effectively kept the people in darkness. Though these spurious leaders of religion were zealous 
to make even a single convert, they turned their disciples into, and I quote, children destined for hellfire, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 15. It is naive to think that established religion could be the enemy of the truth only in first century Palestine. Both Jesus and the apostles saw degenerate religion as a permanent, if not increasingly prevalent, feature of man's failure to know God. For that, see Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5 and 24, and 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. In searching for the cause of the divisions which beset our contemporary churches, we must take full account of the way in which tradition, uncritically handed down from one generation to another, can make unbiased reading of the New Testament documents almost impossible. A leading spokesman for evangelicals in England alerts us to this danger. I quote, People who adhere to sola scriptura, that's to say, we follow the Bible only, as they believe, often adhere, in fact, to a traditional school of interpretation of sola scriptura. Evangelical Protestants can be as much slaves of tradition as Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox Christians, only they don't realize that it's tradition. That's a statement from F.F. F. Bruce in correspondence with me in 1981. It is rare indeed to find anyone who is willing to examine his beliefs in the light of the blueprint which he professes to follow. It is hard to believe that the churchgoers actually study the Bible to check up on what their church is teaching them. The classic example of the benefits of personal first-hand investigation of the scriptures is recorded in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. The Bereans studied the Bible daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. The result was that many became believers. That's Acts 17 verse 11. Most people, alas, simply assume that their creed is based on what Jesus and the Apostles taught. One of the most baffling examples of tradition versus the Christian documents is found amongst a small group of believers known as the Christadelphians. Their founder, John Thomas, 1805 to 1871, had come near to death in a disaster at sea and had vowed that if ever he reached land safely, he would thoroughly investigate the Christian religion. He then set himself the noble task of scrutinizing the Bible in an effort to recover the original teachings of Jesus. He became convinced that much of what went by the name of Christianity was based on traditions which had begun to infiltrate the church some a hundred years after the death of Jesus. In his zeal to oppose popular error, 
which pictured Satan as a horned monster stoking the fires of hell, he maintained that the term Satan in the scriptures denoted nothing more than the evil inherent in human nature. John Thomas's arguments may be examined in his book, Elpis Israel. While it's true that many churchgoers may think of Satan in impersonal terms, unlike the early Christians, it's astonishing to find that the Christadelphians, with their passionate devotion to a plain reading of the Bible, can continue to see in the encounter between the adversary and Jesus in the wilderness an account of Jesus having a conversation with himself, indeed with his own evil human nature. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, Mark 1, verse 12 and 13, and Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. It is one of the clearest teachings of the Bible that Satan is a personality external to man. The term Satan is never in the Hebrew Bible a word describing the internal evil of the human heart. Satan in the Bible on which Jesus was reared always meant an enemy, human or superhuman, external to man. See, for example, 1 Kings 11, verse 14, 1 Samuel 29, verse 4, Job 1, verse 6, and Job 2, verse 1. Zechariah 3, verse 1, where Satan is an external opponent. For a discussion of the personality of the devil, see, please, my Satan, the personal devil, at Restoration Fellowship. It is therefore a serious mistake to assign the meaning human nature to the word Satan when it appears in the New Testament. A great deal of space is taken up by the New Testament writers to show that there's a world of unseen evil spirits as real as the holy angels. See, for example, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17. The conquest of these evil powers by Jesus was proof to the disciples that the cosmic forces lying behind the visible evil on earth were being defeated. Luke 10, verses 17 to 20. It was the superior energy of the Spirit of God invested in Jesus which enabled him to accomplish the extraordinary miracles of exorcism and healing reported in all four accounts of his ministry. Acts 10, verse 38. To deny the reality of Satan and the demons, when the Christian writers labor to demonstrate their existence, is proof indeed of the vice-like grip which tradition can exercise upon the mind even of those whose devotion to the service of their faith is amply demonstrated by their exemplary lives. The denial of the world of supernatural evil is part and parcel of the so-called scientific rationalism which has overtaken even some believers in divine revelation. Satan scored a notable victory 
when he succeeded in relegating belief in his existence to a former, quote, non-scientific age, not least because Jesus and the apostles were made to appear far less intelligent than so-called sophisticated modern man. When Luke penned what we call the fourth chapter of his treatise on Christianity, he described an encounter. I'll read that again. When Luke penned what we call the fourth chapter of his treatise on Christianity, he described an encounter between the devil and Jesus. The account is placed squarely in history. The scene was the wilderness of Judea, and the episode lasted for a period of some six weeks, when Satan had completed his attempts to seduce the Messiah from his loyalty to God, he left him, Luke 4, verse 13, whereupon angels arrived to minister to him, to Jesus, as in Matthew 4, verse 11. Not a moment too early, since Jesus had eaten nothing for 40 days. Satan's approach to Jesus, he came up to him and spoke, Matthew 4, verse 3, was no less a solid fact of history than the approach of the disciples or the Pharisees in Matthew 24, verse 1, or Matthew 19, verse 3. We misread the accounts very badly if we think otherwise. We also overlook the remarkable parallel between the temptation records in Genesis and the Gospels. In the former, the external tempter the so-called serpent, approaches the first woman, Genesis 3, verse 1. In the latter, the external adversary, Satan, the devil, makes his appearance to tempt the head of the new human race. In Genesis, the account concludes with the arrival of angels to guard the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3, verse 24. In the Gospels also, angels approach to minister to the triumphant second Adam, the Messiah Jesus, as in Matthew 4, verse 11. And Jesus is himself the way to life, John 14, verse 6. Mark also lets us know that Jesus was with the wild beasts, a token of the fact that even nature will one day return to the harmony of paradise when the Messiah comes back to rule in his kingdom. We read that in Hosea 2, verse 18, and Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. In Mark 1, verse 13, as Son of Man, the true human being, Jesus was the one who would overcome the beasts of Daniel 7 thus fulfilling the role intended for man as Adam, who was to dominate nature. Genesis 1, verse 26. In the Bible, the reality of a person is not judged by his being visible. A fashionable school of contemporary theology would have us believe that the supernatural dimension in the New Testament should be so-called reinterpreted, in fact, erased from the record so that Christianity may be made more palatable to 20th century secular man. 
This daring theory would, however, leave secular man as secular as ever. It would do nothing to involve him in the real world of the spirit, where alone the solution to all his ills can be found. Thanks to the careful work of the biblical writers, we are not left in the dark as to Satan's methods. He clearly understands human nature. He also knows his Bible. He is not above quoting it if it serves his purpose and he's skilled in altering words here and there for effect, as in Matthew 4, verse 6. As the serpent in Genesis, he was persuasive enough to lure Eve into fatal disobedience in two short statements, amounting to just 26 words. Genesis 3, verses 1, 4, and 5. His technique included questioning what God had said, misquotation, an assertion which was true, followed by a flat contradiction. The performance created a sufficient confusion to prevent Eve from thinking clearly. Genesis 3 verse 6. Satan has long proved himself master of the half-truth. Ignorance of the Bible allows his work easy progress. Compare Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. The history of mankind, and especially of religion, bears the marks of Satan's unceasing interference, never, however, outside the limits prescribed for him by the one who created all things for a very good purpose. Next to the persons of God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus, the Messiah, Satan is the most significant figure in the spiritual drama described by the New Testament. He is treated as a constant threat, especially to the progress of the good news or gospel of the kingdom, the divine message which contains the secret of immortality. As we read in Matthew 13, verse 19, Luke 8, verse 12, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Satan's design is to prevent the Christian from achieving his goal, which is to attain to the gift of life forever. Romans 2, verse 7. The reality of Satan should, however, be no source of terror to the properly instructed believer. The latter is more than conqueror through the infinitely superior power of the God who sustains him, provided, that is, he diligently seeks the truth as opposed to Satan's lies, checking and rechecking what he has learned against the divine standard of truth contained in Scripture. The activity of Satan is centered on a campaign to frustrate the progress of Christians principally by confusing the divine instructions revealing the way to endless life. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18, 2 Corinthians 11 verses 3 and 4 and verses 13 to 15. Satan has been quick to see that the Bible contains divinely revealed information by which the Christian venture may be undertaken with success. 
It is Satan's intention to make those so-called secrets unintelligible. A variety of avenues are open to him in this respect. One is to cast doubt upon the reliability of the documents which record the divinely authorized original faith. A large segment of the Christian world is no longer at all certain that it's possible to recover what Jesus actually taught. An army of scholars have busied themselves with debating whether the words attributed to Jesus in the Bible actually originated with him. I note that in recent years, the Jesus Seminar has astonished the public with its arbitrary decisions about which of the words attributed to Jesus really go back to Jesus. If we do not have access to the words of Jesus, however, we have no basis for calling ourselves Christians. One of the marvels of the contemporary church is its capacity to maintain the name of Christ while feeling free to teach almost anything thought to be suitable as religion for modern man. The approval of sexual practices condemned by the Bible provides a striking example. The so-called Christ of faith often has only a tenuous link with the Jesus of history. Jesus may be imagined by the fertile religious mind of man in a bewildering variety of ways which have little or nothing to do with Jesus as a historical figure. Another satanic ploy is to accuse the original writers of being deluded about the actual facts of the life of Jesus. Their belief in the resurrection, Satan maintains, is explicable as wishful thinking or perhaps hallucination. The effectiveness of these techniques is borne out by the widespread doubts among churchgoers stemming from the doubts held by preachers and university theologians about the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. By New Testament standards, such disciples are relegated to the ranks of unbelievers. Their position is sad indeed, since no one is likely to hold out much hope for his own resurrection if he doesn't believe in Christ's. A so-called Christianity without belief in the resurrection as a solid historical fact, both Jesus' resurrection in the past and the believer's resurrection in the future, this is not the same faith as the faith of the Bible. Paul put it succinctly, I quote, If Jesus has not been raised from death, we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. That's in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, translated in the Good News Bible. Not all, however, can be easily shaken from their faith in the Christian documents. For those who maintain a firm belief in the reliability of the scriptures, a more subtle form of deception is required. They must be led to think that they've grasped what Jesus taught 
while they're presented with a distorted or reduced version of Jesus' message. Over a long period of time, this will effectively induce a false sense of security, from which they will be very unwilling to be shaken. The point must be emphasized. Unexamined tradition is Satan's great weapon. He knows that if men are brought up to accept a particular creed, a statement of faith assumed to be based upon the original teachings of the apostles, or having the support of, quote, the great names of church history, very few will ever travel to verify its truth against the New Testament standard. They will leave it to their leaders to do this for them, and they will not be much perturbed by the fact that their leaders of conflicting groups also claiming to be Christian and reading the same Bible have come to quite different conclusions about the faith. In this way, they will insulate themselves against the uncomfortable realities of a divided Christendom through tradition, tenaciously held, divided Christianity may be perpetuated ad infinitum. Christianity, without a well-developed sense of the reality of Satan and the Christian's daily spiritual conflict with him, has lost touch with its founding fathers and has also lost the battle against the devil. It will inevitably adopt an uncritical attitude to what is taught as the truth, resting in the belief that all versions of Christianity are valid in their way, since all are honestly held by sincere believers. The next step will be to adopt the conviction that all the world religions lead to salvation, since all promote the worship of the same God. It will not have occurred to those holding a so-called generous view of the divided churches to ask whether the devil has not been extremely active in preaching a version or versions of so-called Christianity which hides some of the essential elements of the divine plan for rescue. In calling for a return to the Christian blueprint, the apostolic faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude verse 3 says, we must insist that Christians follow Jesus by recovering a belief in the reality of Satan and the demons and their continuous campaign of deception. They must reckon with them as the forces orchestrating the theological chaos represented by so many Christian groupings. In so doing, believers will be enabled to enter the world of the early church rather than the world as presented to us by scientific humanism. It is the failure to understand the real enemy which alienates much of Christianity from Paul's classic statements that as Christians we are not wrestling against so-called flesh and blood, but we're wrestling against the unseen, quote, world rulers, the spirits of evil in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians 6, verse 12, who are led by, I quote, 
the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. The God of the present era, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It would be helpful if Paul's terminology were reinstated amongst believers. Paul sees the Christian struggle as warfare against the cosmocrats. Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul's word is cosmocratores in the Greek. These are astral deities with enormous power. For Paul, there is a major spiritual supercriminal at large working tirelessly to destroy human beings by whatever means he can, deception being his primary tool. As Revelation 12 verse 9 says, Correct teaching is essential if God is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. John 4 verse 24. Hosea laments the loss of proper instruction. I quote, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. The identification of the biblical enemy does not exempt us from responsibility for our own errors. We are responsible for resisting the devil. James 4 verse 7. Divine revelation is provided for our constant study. Psalm number 1 verses 1 and 2. Psalm 119 and Joshua 1 verse 8. A source, as Paul said, of, quote, the wisdom that leads to salvation. 2 Timothy 3 verse 15, which is victory over Satan through Jesus. The antidote to deception in any field is proper instruction. If the church does not, so to speak, go to school with Christ and the apostles, Acts 2 verse 42, it has lost the battle against the, quote, disinformation of the devil. The tools for overcoming the power of Satan are at hand. If we will only reach out and grasp them, immersing ourselves in the words of Jesus and the apostles, summarized as the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news is that the King Messiah has already defeated Satan, even though the effects of his victory are not yet fully apparent. See John 16 verse 11 and Colossians 3 verse 15. The Bible does not hold out hope for a complete reversal of the human tragedy this side of the second coming of Jesus. I note that Satan will be bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations only at the return of Christ to rule. Revelation 20 verse 3. Until that time, in Paul's words, I quote, evil men will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3 verse 13. The final victory must await the future installment as king of the hero of the biblical drama, Jesus the Messiah, the appointed ruler of Israel 
and of the world, and, and here I quote, of his government on the restored throne of David, there shall be no end. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7.